I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're looking at verses 51 through 56 this afternoon. It's another short passage. Um, Jesus, we, we mentioned last week, is now ending his ministry in Galilee. And as he leaves Galilee and begins heading towards Jerusalem, we're going to immediately see there's three different characters or three groups that are mentioned in this passage. You have Jesus, you have a Samaritan village, and then you have James and John. And I think the, the goal is to see there are three different purposes in all three of these groups. They all had different purposes in mind um, that were guiding their ambitions or guiding their, um, their actions. So I think the goal is for us to begin or at least to, to respond to this passage by evaluating whether our own mission or purposes are aligned with Christ's kingdom purposes. That takes some thought. It takes some meditation on passages like this and, and considering, asking hard questions, maybe even writing down our answers, reflecting upon them in prayer, talking about them with our spouses. I think it's easy for us to, to focus on our own agenda and to neglect Christ's mission. That doesn't mean that if we are all aligned with Christ's mission that we'll have the same exact uh, callings, right? that our vocations will be the same, that we'll all become missionaries and go overseas. Um, that's not the case. But we will be called to glorify God in our vocation, in our calling, so that whatever Christ calls us to do, we would be ready to go. So this is the theme of this passage, as well as the one that follows in considering the, the cost of following Jesus, um, which we won't look at next week because we'll have the Napark Joint Worship Service, but uh, two weeks later. And I do think this passage also complements what we looked at this morning. Remember the, just thinking about the basic principle of we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. If you take the idea or the summary statement that if the love of Christ compels us to guard against worldly corruption, then that teaches us how to keep the world from getting into us. And sort of the analogy we gave from that Beaky provides of the water getting into the boat. The boat is meant to be in the water, but the water is not meant to be in the boat. And if we don't deal with the water that's getting into the boat, at some point we're going to sink. And so the, I, that, that principle of the of being in the world, we're meant to be in the world, but not to be controlled or, um, you know, uh, guided by the world's uh, principles. So if you love, if the love of Christ compels us to guard against worldly corruption, that teaches us how to keep the world from getting into us. Therefore, holding fast to the name of Christ is, is not incompatible with living in a corrupt world. Christ didn't call the Pergamum Christians in Revelation to flee the city, even though it was full of idolatry and rampant corruption. He just simply calls them to hold fast to him, and he commends them for doing that. But the problem was they were holding fast to him while also holding fast to the world and holding fast to false teaching. But here's the question, and here's where this passage, I think, complements um, what we looked at or the ideas, the application of it. In our rejection of worldly corruption, what is the Christian called to do with regard to worldly people? 
What should our heart or what, what should our posture be towards them? We know that we cannot be of the world, but what about those who are, who are in and of the world? This passage calls us to a compassionate response, to show compassion in the face of a hostile culture for the sake of the gospel. This is the gospel age. And so the gospel should be the foundational principle that, that guides our actions and our thoughts towards outsiders. I don't think it's an easy thing to practice, but it is consistent with the whole counsel of God's word and redemptive history. This phase of redemptive history that we're in, we are called to love our enemies, to love those who are opposed to us, to show kindness to them. And that doesn't mean that we can't also cry out to God for justice. There are Psalms that very clearly call upon us to do that, to pray for that, and to desire and uh, look forward to God. Um, expressing all of his attributes. But it's not our job to seek vengeance. Right? Our job is to show compassion, to, to display a gospel, um, both in our words and in our lifestyle. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this simple illustration that once again calls us to a place of interacting with the culture. We considered it this morning in our own response, how we need to be careful, how we need to be accountable to the people of God in order to not allow the world to transform us or to pull us away from you, that we do live in this world, but we're not of it. And yet we also need to learn how to respond to a world that hates you and hates us because of our love for you. Lord, how can we respond to that to them in the face of hostility? How are we to react? And I think it's it's clear from the gospels that our response should be one of compassion. To cry out, to have for you to have mercy upon them. Even as Jesus cried out from the cross, recognizing that those who crucified him didn't even know what they were doing. Lord, help us to have the heart of Christ because we are united to him. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Amen. This is God's holy word. So, as you can see, three different characters, three different groups, and three very different reactions. You have Jesus determined to die. Really, that's what this opening uh, statement is. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, it says to be, the time was drawing near for him to be lifted up, which, will be a, which is a direct reference to his ascension. But the reason why he's determined to go is because he has to, he has to prepare himself for what, it, what he will endure 
before the ascension, which is the cross. So we'll see that he's determined to die, and then we'll have this uh, next section where we'll see the Samaritan village, which is determined to divide or to maintain a division that had developed among the Samaritans and Jews, and we'll explain that when we get there. And then we'll conclude by looking at the disciples, James and John, and their determination to judge, determined to judge. Let's start with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the days drew near, it's, that is a phrase where he, they're clearly saying, we're talking about redemptive history. We're talking about a very significant portion in time where God is about to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. The days are drawing near. As the days drew near, he's referring to the cross or to that stage of history where that would include and encompass the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, all of that. Luke wants you to have the fulfillment of messianic prophecy on your mind as you read this episode. Recognize what Jesus' task is and what he's committed to doing. Again, I I already said this, but the, the idea of him being taken up, the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is where we get the term ascension from. So it's a reference to his ascension uh, that you'll see again at the beginning of Acts where, refle- where Luke again is reflecting upon um, Jesus being taken up into heaven. But that idea where it says he set his face, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, that implies a resolve to die first. It implies a determined spirit to endure what he knows he must endure in order to get to the ascension. He didn't need courage and strength to ascend to the Father, to, the, to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God. That was something he looked forward to. That was the hope that he had. That was the joy that was set before him. But he knew before he could get there, he had to be determined to face the suffering of the cross. And so as he bore the weight of our sin, and as he thought about that, he's already beginning to experience some of that in his life. His humility began at his birth, continues throughout his life where he is perfectly enduring and facing all kinds of trials and tribulations. But he's also preparing himself to to face the cross, which would be the pinnacle of his Um, of his tribulation as the father pours out his wrath upon his son, bearing the weight of our sin. Facing that challenge was a source of angst. You'll see that very clearly when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he is facing his death with determination, and this highlights, more than anything else, his commitment to that covenant of redemption made before he was born with the Father and the Holy Spirit, determined to rescue a people for himself. Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's not that the suffering or the cross was joyful. It was the joy that was set before him, the hope that he had of getting to the other side of the cross. The cross comes before the crown. Um, Isaiah chapter 50, 
verses 5 through 9, speaks of the suffering servant setting his face like flint. And it may be that this is the passage, this is the illusion uh, that Luke is, is making here. And it's probably some level of Isaiah is in the mind of Christ as he's working, you know, as he's suffering, as he is living out the life of the suffering servant that is prophesied here by Isaiah. We read this in Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 9. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And those who would proclaim Christ to be guilty, they'll be the ones put to shame. But Christ endures that. He's determined to suffer completely in our place. Determined to endure the pain of his scourging and mockery with God's help. And so this concept, it ought to heighten our appreciation for Jesus. And if this prophecy was on his mind at this time, and I think it was, then we ought to be moved by that. And the fact that he set his face toward Jerusalem when he certainly could have found many other avenues of escape. He was determined to follow through on his plan. Well, unfortunately, that was not on the minds of the Samaritan village. They were determined to maintain this division. Um, In verses 52 and 53, we read this, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So the Samaritan village noticed Jesus' determination to get to Jerusalem, so they did not want to provide provisions for him to stay with them. Uh, Jesus did, at times, we, we see it in his ministry, he possessed a greater interest in Israel than Samaria. Uh, but that had nothing to do with this cultural tension that had brought about this division among the uh, Samaritans and Jews. All the way back in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 21 through 24, we read of King Omri, who was the ruling, uh, ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he bought this hill and named it Samaria after its previous owner, Shemer. Um, and within that region, upon Mount Gerizim, he, they, would essentially, or they would eventually establish an alternate site for the people to worship. So they no longer had to go to Jerusalem. They could now worship on Mount Gerizim. You can see that in, in Jesus' um, instruction to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where she's questioning who's right here. And, and Jesus does correct the Samaritans' um, view there. But he calls them to, to, rise up, to rise above those differences and say, ultimately, God's searching for those who worship him in spirit and truth. So when, we, when, I, when I pray that prayer before worship, it's a reference to Jesus' response to the Samaritan woman. 
right? Saying, saying we are called to worship God in spirit and in truth now, and so it, 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 it will not matter where you're located. You will be able to do that from any building or any structure. But at this point, this was rebellion, right? Back in 1 Kings, this was rebellion against God's established plan for them to worship in the temple that, that they had been instructed to, to establish there in Jerusalem. They had gone their own way. And then also, Samaritans were considered half-breeds because they did intermarry with pagan nations, which the Jews themselves were guilty of on numerous occasions. But at this point, that was all building towards their tension among one another. So there was an unwillingness on the, Samaritan, on this, on the part of the Samaritan village to show hospitality, which was a tremendous insult at this point, at this, uh, in the culture at that time. Regardless, really, of the size of, the, of the, the traveling cohort that Jesus was with, it, it might have simply just been too big for this village to take on, but, but there was no effort. It, it, it seems to imply that they, they simply saw that he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and so they treated him like, a, like an outcast. They didn't want him. They didn't want to provide hospitality to him. So, of course, this was not uncommon for Samaria uh, but the hatred does go in both directions. There's a story that Josephus tells. He describes how those from Galilee would often travel through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem during the festival seasons. And so um, on, on one such occasion or during one such season, the Samaritan village of Ganea provoked a fight with the Galileans who were traveling through their land and killed many of them. And so the Jews responded by attempting to hire a hitman and uh, who would go and avenge the murders for them. But the Samaritans had already paid that hitman off in order to keep him at bay. So he was on their side. The Galileans instead took up arms themselves and gained the support of a man who survived in the mountains by robbing Samaritans. So he was an enemy of the Samaritans, and, and they said, hey, why don't you come along? And they gathered up this a group of people to come. Well, the hitman heard about the plan of the Galileans, so he gathered up four regiments of uh, footmen and armed the Samaritans himself and then led them out to fight with the Jews, which of course resulted in many more deaths. And it took ultimately the discouragement of some influential Jewish leaders uh, to put an end to that retaliation and violence that was taking place at that time. These leaders convinced the Galileans not to respond once again with vengeance of their own, but to simply put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn the loss of friends and family and to maintain some sense of peace. But it just shows the, the violent um, response that these two communities had. They hated one another. And John Calvin says, many will be imp impelled by the warmth of their zeal but if the spirit of prudence be wanting, their ebullitions, which I'll have to look that word up, end in foam. If they don't have prudence, their zeal will just be foam, just be rage. Frequently, too, it happens that the impure feelings of the flesh are mingled with their zeal and that those who appear to be the keenest zealots for the glory of God are blinded by the private feelings of of the flesh. So zeal must be tempered with wisdom and prudence. 
We cannot trust our gut reactions to every sense of injustice that we face. Both the Jews and the Samaritans were so busy hating one another that they were blinded by the love of Jesus. Samaria's hatred for Jerusalem kept them from receiving the Savior. It doesn't doesn't mean that they necessarily hated him, but they, they knew he was associated with the Jews, and so therefore they rejected him just like they would have rejected any other, traveling, any other cohort of, of Jews traveling through their land from Galilee. So they were blinded by their hatred for the Jews from receiving the Savior, but Jerusalem's hatred for their Savior led them to crucify him. They were both misled by their zeal. So how are you dealing with any remaining hostility in your own heart? Is there any sense of distrust or division that is isolating you from the Savior and his means of grace? I I know that's a step to make, to, 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 to apply this hostility that they were showing to the Savior to say it could it could apply to us in the sense that that we avoid the means of grace in order to avoid people, right? In order to maintain some sense of division or distrust from others. So we come to church to receive mercy and compassion from our Lord, but if anything gets in the way of that, we ought to question whose mission we've actually adopted. Are we serving ourselves? Are we serving the Lord? So this zealous response of retribution and vengeance that results from division was precisely what the disciples were expecting. And in this case, James and John speak up and reveal that they're determined to judge. They're going to respond in the same way everyone else was responding at that point. It's a call for judgment. So we read in verses 54 through 56, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. We know these two disciples are given the name sons of thunder because of this reaction. Luke is writing to Christians who are struggling to believe. Think about this, the context of the original reader. These are believers receiving this account from Luke, and they're struggling to believe in the face of a hostile culture. So the response of the Samaritan village is not surprising, as we've already seen, and Luke highlights the lack of compassion from James and John. But even their response was probably not surprising to any of the original readers. It was consistent with what they had continued to experience and see. And in fact, they are reflecting or reacting to, a, to an Old Testament reading where Elijah calls down fire from heaven to consume the army sent from Samaria by King Ahaziah. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 1 where King Ahaziah despises Elijah, so he sends a, a, a you know, a, a a group of soldiers, 50 of them, to 
put him to death, to capture him and to, to bring him back so they could execute him. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven on the first group of 50 men. Another, so the king says, well, let's send another group of 50. Same thing happens to them. Sends a third group, and finally the commander of that army prays, asks for mercy, begs Elijah not to call fire down from heaven upon them. And so the Lord relents at that point. But that's what James and John are referring to. They're making a, a really a, a valid connection, at least in their minds. They, they're probably feeling like we should be commended for making this connection. We, we recognize that these are, this is Samaria, and you judged them in the past. Should we, should we do what Elijah did? Should we call down fire upon them? Destroy this village? Clearly, they're opposed to you. Let's, let's just wipe them off the face of the earth. But obviously, context is everything, and this was not Jesus' purpose. His purpose was not to come and bring judgment, but salvation. So his meek response to the rejection of, his Samarit- of, of this Samaritan village is contrasted with the harsh response of the disciples. R.C. Sproul says, the day of woe will indeed come. But the difference between God and the disciples is the difference between a God who is slow to anger, who is patient, gracious, and long-suffering, and sinful disciples who are quick to anger, impatient, and short-suffering. They were ready to bring swift and sudden destruction to the first act of disloyalty to Jesus. So how should we respond when the culture rejects Christianity due to its moral stance? That's some of the persecution we face as believers today, called bigots and and names and all kinds of, um, you know, cultural terms that are supposed to get under our skin. Do we call down fire from heaven to consume our adversaries? Does the world see our angry defiance more than our gentle compassion? Maybe we aren't all called to have the demeanor of Mr. Rogers. But neither are we called to model ourselves after zealous political talk show hosts. And I'll refrain from naming them because that might offend you. There's this sort of way to respond to disagreement with anger and hatred that I think does nothing to advance the kingdom. What is your default possible to those who reject you and your Christian morality? Do you thumb your nose at them and chalk it up as another example of hatred we must endure as believers? Do you foment anger and gather the troops to respond with a boycott? It's another common response that we have today. And I'm not going to say every act such as those is, is wrong. But I do think that a compassionate response seems to be closer to the heart of Jesus. And that means we slow down and prayerfully consider how the gospel might change both our demeanor and our actions towards those who would be opposed to us. Daryl Bach says the, this perspective indicates how the church should handle rejection. Since God will exercise justice at some future time, Vindication is not called for now. As long as the era of grace continues, the church should continue to minister and offer her message of hope. 
to be a servant of the gospel is not to highlight judgment or long for execution, but to seek to save lives as long as God allows. Now, I might temper that a little bit, the idea of, of not highlighting judgment or longing for execution, because I do think there are psalms, and especially the imprecatory psalms, that, that seem to be longing for justice and judgment. Right? David is crying out for that, but it takes much care right, to do that in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, that glorifies him, that it's not just filling us with greater anger. This passage is, is very clear that, that, um, that in many cases, a response of, of judgment is not what is most needed, but that we should be crying out for mercy to fall upon a people who are opposed to God. Well, let's do so now in response. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, an, another passage that maybe challenges some of our preconceived ideas. Maybe we've fallen into a pattern of, of simply responding to the world with indifference, not having a heart for the lost because we can't stand being around them. We've grown so indifferent towards them that, that, that division, maybe apart from real physical violence, there is much to compare with, our, uh, with the division here between the Jews and the Samaritans. Lord, if there is any, anything like that in our lives, I pray that you would help us to, to weed that out, to, to look to you, to give us the strength to respond to those whom we perceive as opponents with compassion, with tenderness and gentleness, with the meekness that Christ exhibited in his earthly ministry. To know that there is a future judgment and to know that justice will be served in your perfect timing, but not to think that we ourselves have the right perspective, that we can put ourselves on the throne and call down judgment upon those that oppose us. Lord, help us to wait upon you with patience, to recognize that your, your patience is an opportunity for repentance. And so let us begin with our own repentance and then call others to that repentance as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite